Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by long-time healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. This week, we delve into the science of salt. We look at what it does in the body, why it causes problems for farmers, and the new avenues that scientists are exploring to desalinate seawater and keep us all refreshed. Before that, though, news of the contagious cancer that's followed dogs across the world and how scientists are growing a brain in a dish to find answers to Alzheimer's disease. Hello, I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. First up, do you struggle to concentrate on tasks and do you find yourself frequently feeling unsettled? Well, if so, then you could be one of the nearly 10% of the adult population who have ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Previously, we thought that this was mainly a childhood condition, but now a new study by King's College London's Jessica Agnew-Blay suggests that a large number of individuals develop the condition as adults, despite not showing any signs of it as youngsters. We assessed people for ADHD in young adulthood, so at age 18, and then we looked back at ADHD assessments done in childhood at ages 5, 7, 10 and 12, And we found that actually nearly 70% of people who had ADHD at age 18 did not have ADHD at any of these childhood assessments. Goodness. So that means those individuals did not receive a diagnosis when they were little. So these are what? Are these new adult cases of ADHD? Right, exactly. And even over and above that, uh, not only did they not receive diagnoses, but we actually asked their mothers and their teachers about their ADHD symptoms in childhood when they were 5, 7, 10 and 12 and it seems that these individuals did not have the disorder at any of these ages in childhood. Do you think it's the same condition then? That's a very good question and is really one of the main questions that our study raises. Um, I think a lot further research needs to be done to understand this better and to know whether this sort of late-onset ADHD has the same kind of causes as ADHD that begins in childhood, if it would respond similarly to the same kind of treatments, for example. Well, I'm thinking, obviously, when one is in the childhood time of one's life. It's a very different environment, very supportive, Mm -hmm, fewer mm -hmm. risks, lower stress than when someone is a young adult who might be going off to university for the first time or in the workplace for the first time. So the demands on that individual and the support network can be quite different. And so is it possible they still had the same risk? It was just disclosed at a different time in their life? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's one thing that we considered in our study was that perhaps these individuals would have had 
ADHD in childhood, but they were in such supportive family environments that the disorder was not apparent until they left home later on. So one thing that I think would be really interesting is to follow up these individuals later in life. So several years from now, are these people who had late onset ADHD and particular problems with ADHD when they were age 18, do they still have these problems once they've maybe adjusted a bit more to adult life? Now, based on the numbers that you looked at with your twin study, what proportion of, of adults in the UK or equivalent countries might therefore have one of these adult diagnoses of ADHD? So we found that overall there was about an 8% prevalence of adult ADHD at age 18, and that among these people, nearly 70%, so 67.5%, did not have a childhood diagnosis of ADHD. It's a lot of people, isn't mm-hmm, it? Mm-hmm. What can we do about it? I think the first step is around recognition. Um, So I think for clinicians especially, a lot of them are of the mindset and have been taught that if you were to have an ADHD diagnosis, you have to have it in childhood. So they may often ask an individual's parents about how they acted as children, or they might even want to speak to someone's teachers to see, well, were these problems with hyperactivity and inattention present in childhood? But here we found that for a lot of these people, they didn't really have particular problems with these symptoms when they were children. So whether we really need to focus on looking back to that childhood period is not necessarily clear. Focuses your mind, doesn't it? Jessica Agnew-Blay, she published that work in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Psychiatry. CTVT, or canine transmissible venereal tumour, is a very unusual kind of cancer. The majority of cancers that we see arise from an individual's own cells. But in this dog tumour, which emerged in one single dog 11,000 years ago, the cells from that animal's cancer are themselves infectious and they can spread to other dogs when the animals mate. Now scientists at Cambridge University have studied dogs with the cancer from around the world and turned up a big surprise. The cancers have adopted DNA from the host dogs that they've infected – Specifically, this has happened in structures inside the cells called mitochondria, which provide cells with their energy. And this, the scientists think, is how the tumour is keeping itself fit. Georgia Mills went to see researcher Andrea Strakova at the Department of Veterinary Medicine. We collected over 400 samples from 39 countries around the world and we looked at the mitochondrial DNA of these samples. So mitochondria are, let's say, batteries of the cell which provide energy and they have a small piece of DNA which codes for the proteins needed by the mitochondria. And we looked at the mutations or genetic changes in this mitochondrial DNA, which gave us a unique opportunity to look at the ways that the disease spread around the world. Because these cancer cells are transferred directly from dog to dog, cells in each tumour are from the original dog to contract it 11,000 years ago, meaning it can be traced back to that time. But very occasionally throughout history, a tumour in a specific dog has done something a little unusual and grabbed mitochondrial DNA from cells of the host dog. My name is Morani Lalaur um, and I'm a second year PhD student in the transmissible cancer group. If you can imagine that usually dogs would carry around their own normal mitochondria, but these host mitochondria then swapped into the cancer cells. um, And then these were spread throughout global dog populations over hundreds to thousands of years. And using these and kind of the patterns we saw across our global population of samples, we were able to track how different groups of kind of dogs afflicted with CTVT moved. 
This snatching of DNA happened at least five times in history, meaning the team could get a clearer idea of the movement of infected dogs throughout time. And this pattern matched old trade routes across the ocean, so it looks like people took their dogs with them to the high seas. Andrea. From the five different um, transfers of mitochondria, we were able to define five different clades. And the timing of these clades was based on the mutations which we found in, the, in each of the mitochondria. By working out uh, the just normal background rate of mutations, you can look at these, you can take the DNA from the dogs that are infected, look at the DNA in the mitochondria, and then find out how old this cancer is. Exactly, because we use the so-called molecular clock, so we can look at the uh, number of mutations which we see in each of these different mitochondrial types, and that helps us to look at the timing when each of them arose. And then these different clades are from when these big events, when mitochondrial DNA switched. Exactly. So these are from the time when the mitochondrial DNA from the dog actually jumped into the tumour cell and this was the switch, as you describe. Why would this happen? Well, we think that one of the reasons could be that the mitochondria in the tumour have so many mutations that they would be in a way less functional and therefore gaining a mitochondria from the normal dog, that would provide a selective advantage for the cell. By grabbing this mitochondrial DNA from healthy dogs, they can reduce the number of harmful genetic changes that will have built up over time. A very clever trick. But the team came across something even more surprising. Well, we found one very, very special case in a dog in Nicaragua. What actually happened in this dog is that not only did the mitochondria jump from the dog into the tumour cell, but actually we found that these two mitochondria mixed to create a single mitochondria formed both by the tumour and the dog DNA. And why is this unusual? This is uh, something that has never been reported in cancers before. And we believe this could be because it may be very difficult to detect. So we suspect that this process could actually be a lot more common than expected, but we just don't have the tools to detect it. So what we are planning to do in the future is to look more widely to see if this type of mitochondrial mixing is found in other tumours around the world. And also it would be very interesting to see if we can see this type of mixing in human cancers as well. Do you think this would have any implications for um, cancer treatment? If mitochondrial recombination is indeed common in human cancers as well, then certainly there would be a potential for targeted treatment. Intriguing stuff. Andreas Strakova there, and before her, Maura Nidlau from the University of Cambridge, and they published that work just recently in eLife. Hello, Greya here. Just a quick note to say thank you for all your nominations for this year's Podcast Awards. We're ecstatic to be named as a finalist in the science and medicine category. We couldn't have done it without you, so thank you very much. But now we need to ask you to help us win. We need you to vote for us every day from Sunday the 29th of May for the next 15 days. You're allowed to vote every day, so that's 15 votes. To vote, go to Naked Scientists dot com slash vote. This is the Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And still to come, we'll be grinding down the facts about salt to find out is it really bad for you and why.
But first, let's hear from Kat Arney because she's absolutely buzzing about this week's misconception. We're finally moving towards sunnier days and the flowers are blooming. And where you get flowers, you get bees. But looking at a big buzzing bumblebee making its way from bloom to bloom on tiny wings, you might wonder how on earth it stays airborne. You wouldn't be the only one. It's long been held that bumblebees shouldn't be able to fly, and it's repeated by everyone from management consultants and marketeers to US presidential candidates. In 2008, wannabe President Mike Huckabee said, It's scientifically impossible for the bumblebee to fly, but the bumblebee, being unaware of these scientific facts, flies anyway. So given that bees obviously can fly, travelling at a rate of three metres per second, are they willfully defying all the proven laws of aerodynamics and science as we know them? Or is there something else going on? One mistake people make when thinking about the flight of the bumblebee is to assume that there are similarities with other winged things, such as birds or aeroplanes. In fact, this is probably where the myth arose based on calculations of the aerodynamic properties of typical wings from decades ago, suggesting that the bumblebee's wings are too small to lift its weight into the air. But bees are not birds, and they're built very differently. And simplistic models that assume that their wings are rigid like an aeroplane and work in the same way are bound to be wrong. Rather than being built to soar freely through the air, bumblebees are the tanker trucks of the insect world, evolved to carry huge loads of pollen back to their hive. To figure out exactly how their wings move to propel them through the air, back in 2009, Oxford University scientists put bumblebees into a wind tunnel with some smoke and some high-speed cameras. And although the bees clearly do fly, they do it in an unusual way. Unlike most flying animals, their left and right wings flap independently and the airflow around them never joins up to help them slip through the air more easily. It's best described as a brute force approach to flying rather than the elegant soaring of a bird or the streamlined flight of a fly. What's more, a bee's wings are much more flexible than the more rigid feathered wings of a bird. By wiggling and rotating their wings around hundreds of times per second, the bees create what are known as vortices, or to put it simply, mini hurricanes, that give them the lift they need to stay aloft. This is much more similar to the whirring blades of a helicopter rather than the fixed wings of a plane. And nobody goes around saying that helicopters shouldn't be able to fly. So, although they may do it in an unorthodox manner, the flight of the bumblebee doesn't defy physics. In fact, this myth is often used as a way of being disparaging about science, implying that if something doesn't fit into our current models or we don't know how it happens, then science is somehow at fault or that there are mystical forces at work. Of course, as this story shows, when something appears to defy the laws of physics, it's probably because we haven't found the right way of studying it. So next time you hear someone repeat this myth, tell them to buzz off. And Kat will be back with more myths next month. Meanwhile, if there's a dubious bit of scientific dogma that you'd like her to delve into on your behalf, then drop us a line. You can write to chris at thenakedscientist.com. In recent years, large numbers of articles have been published about advances in the fight against dementia, the loss of a person's mental faculties, which often accompanies old age. But how much further forward are we, not only in treating, but also in diagnosing and understanding dementia? Grad Jackson met with Rosa Sancho, who's head of research at Alzheimer's Research UK, to find out. So Alzheimer's disease is a form of dementia, is the most common cause of dementia. 
And there's a, a hallmark to all of these diseases, which is the accumulation of proteins in the brain. So in the case of Alzheimer's disease, there's accumulation of two proteins, amyloid and tau. Amyloid forms sticky clumps in the brain outside the brain cells called plaque, and tau forms tangles uh, inside the cells. And we have no idea why these proteins build up? We don't know really what causes these diseases. It's likely to be a mix of genes and environment, but recent research advances have told us a lot about these causes. And one bit of research that has told us a lot more about the workings of Alzheimer's on a neuron-by-neuron basis is done by Dr Rick Liversey at Cambridge University. Would you mind signing in? Sure. What's he been doing that's so remarkable? Well, he's growing brains from skin cells in a Petri dish. So here in the lab, what we've been doing is making human nerve cells from people with different types of dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. And that allows us to study how the disease starts and progresses within real human nerve cells, but in a lab situation. Rick calls them nerve cells, but these nerve cells, or neurons, are the building blocks of our brain. But how can you get a brain to grow in a lab? Well, he's basically made a womb. What these big cabinets are is essentially they're at body temperature, so they keep the stem cells happy. And actually what they're doing is they're growing in a mixture of salt and sugar. And it's like they're in sort of normal body fluids. So if we take them out and show you on the microscope... They are literally petri dishes with some fluid swishing around. They actually look pretty unremarkable. That is, until you put them under a microscope. And then you can see all these neurons. But how do you get these brain cells in the first instance? It all starts with skin cells, which they reverse engineer into a stem cell. These are a bit like the first few cells that then form an embryo and can basically turn into any other type of cell. They could form a bit of your bone or your lung or your eye. But Rick makes them turn into brain cells. In normal development, a single cell ends up making an entire body or an organism. And we understand a fair amount about how cells talk to another and, and sort of the genetic mechanisms by which that happens. So we use that knowledge to essentially drive the stem cells down particular roads and ignore others. Now, I assume you're not growing entire brains in petri dishes here, only a region of the brain? Yeah, so we grow this thing called the cerebral cortex, and only a small part of it. I mean, to put it in context, a human brain weighs about a kilogram. That's an awful lot of cells. It's of the order of 10 billion cells. So we typically will grow, you know, a couple of million cells at a time. I find that kind of amazing and slightly weird. <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, biological systems um, have a lot of self-organizing properties. So the neurons we're showing you now are organized largely in two dimensions. Because what we're seeing here is, well, it doesn't resemble a brain at all. It's, you have to put it under a microscope to be able to even see it. Why do you need to do this? How does this help? Most people, when they hear about Alzheimer's, what they're used to hearing about is these uh, MRIs which show, you know, really small brains. That's very late in the disease. The early stage of the disease is characterized by what's called mild cognitive impairment, where people get the memory loss. And what's actually underlying that is it's a dysfunction how neurons communicate with one another. And how neurons communicate with one another is these things called synapses, which is the sort of gap between individual nerve cells. And as far as we can tell, all the early symptoms of the disease are what we would call a manifestation of synaptic dysfunction. And that's why it's so important to be looking at the level of real neurons in the lab, because that, that's, that's the level at which the disease really operates. 
Now that you can see how this disease progresses on this tiny, tiny scale, how does that then become an application outside the lab? It allows us to study the mechanisms by which the disease starts and progresses. And that means we understand it more and we can what we the jargon we use is the pathways, biological pathways. And biological pathways are the level at which you target drugs. Because mm-hmm. my understanding is currently a lot of the drugs for Alzheimer's tend to be more treating the symptoms than the actual progression of the disease. Yeah, I mean, the, the, there are no disease-modifying drugs for Alzheimer's disease. You know, like many people, I get emails most weeks from families when a family member is diagnosed, just, just asking, just saying, you know, what's available, what are the trials? And it's very common that when I reply and, you know, and say, well, actually, right now there are no drugs which will halt the disease or slow the disease, a very common response I get back is, are you kidding me? Because most people, you know, just, you know, happily up to then haven't been aware of the fact that it, it's not like cardiovascular disease, it's not like cancer. We really have very little in, in our toolkit. I do find this quite shocking because as a journalist, I'm always leafing through press releases and it feels as though every week there's some sort of Alzheimer's advance. I put this to Rosa. You're right, what you're seeing is a huge momentum behind dementia research. There is political will, there is more funding, meaning that there are more discoveries being made more clinical trials ongoing than ever before and new ways of treating the disease uh, which really weren't here before. I wonder whether you could give us a quick pit stop tour of what you think has been really important in advancing our understanding of the disease. Genetic studies have shown us new avenues of research. We also have more knowledge now of how amyloid and tau um, interact to cause brain cell death. These have led to exciting new treatments that are anti-amyloid and anti-tau therapies, as well as diagnostic markers to try to trace these two proteins in the brain. Rosa Sancho from Alzheimer's Research UK and before her, Rick Livesey from Cambridge University. They were speaking with naked scientist Greer Jackson. Now, could Mars once have been a surfer's paradise? Well, quite possibly. That is, if you like surfing on tsunamis. We know, thanks to a succession of probes, that there are strong signatures of water sitting beneath the surface of the red planet and researchers have concluded that Mars was once dominated by a massive ocean. But if the ocean was there, where's the shoreline that it once lapped up against? Because it's only with an eye of faith that something fitting the bill can just about be seen on satellite images of the surface. Well, now an international team of scientists think they know the answer. There was a shoreline, but some giant waves triggered by two massive meteor impacts washed it away. Planetary scientist David Rothery, who wasn't involved in the study, has been taking a look at the data for me. So what's been suggested is that the shoreline of the the now vanished ocean has been washed over by tsunami waves. In one particular part of the shoreline, the the team that's produced this new paper have shown two deposits that have washed up over where the shoreline would have been, depositing boulders at a high level, and then have washed back, carving backwash channels. So we've got evidence of waves dumping stuff ashore and then the water draining back into the ocean from two tsunamis. And these would have been generated by large meteorites, small asteroids crashing into the ocean, creating a tsunami. And how big would those tsunamis have been? Well, they're talking about 30 
kilometre sized craters. It kind of depends whether the ocean was ice covered or free water at the surface, how big the waves would be. But once they reach shallow water at the edge of the ocean and, and rush on shore, they, they do ramp up. So we're looking at waves of the order of 10 metres high running ashore and running uphill for several tens of metres under their own momentum, carrying boulders with them and then draining back into the sea, carving these channels. What's the, the sort of backstory to all of this? We, we have evidence that Mars was once a very wet place. So why is the whole idea of there being an ocean there contentious? Well, you're right, Chris. There's plenty of evidence that Mars ha- has been wet in the distant past. There's some very big channel systems draining through the high-standing southern hemisphere of the planet into the low northern hemisphere. The northern hemisphere is low-lying and covered in sediments. There may be some ice mixed in with those sediments still today. And that is where the ocean would have been three or three and a half billion years ago. It's now long since dried out and or frozen into the sediments on the bottom. But plenty of signs that there was an ocean there once upon a time. Now, the shoreline of this ocean has been hard to locate. You you can trace it if you try. It's not an obvious shoreline. And perhaps now it's been suggested that there have been tsunamis washing up and down across this shoreline. That's why the usual shoreline markers aren't so obvious to see, because they've been obliterated by the occasional series of tsunami waves rushing ashore and then draining back down into the ocean basin. How have the team who have come up with these predictions actually done this? Well, they've been using a variety of images from spacecraft orbiting Mars, including some images uh, with really fine spatial resolution. So I'm looking here at a picture that's showing angular boulders uh, just a few metres in size in a big deposit above the shoreline that they say have been washed uphill from the sea by the waves crashing ashore. So it's a variety of high-resolution and medium-resolution images and they've traced the shorelines for over a 1,000 kilometres. Right, so they're starting with what we do know, which is we can see what we can see. We've got very good images of the surface of Mars, and they're asking what could have produced these sorts of images, and so they're sort of backwards extrapolating what could have done that. That's right. I mean, I wish I'd thought of this, because it's pretty obvious that on a planet like Mars, if you've got a sea, it doesn't have much atmosphere to slow anything down, and we do know in the de- in the distant past, there were craters forming on Mars. There would have been a dozen or so 30-kilometre craters formed on the northern hemisphere of Mars during the time when this ocean is supposed to have been there. So it's pretty obvious that impacts into that ocean ought to have caused tsunami waves. It's happened in the Earth in the distant past as well. And these guys have found the deposits and the erosional features of the kind that would be produced by tsunami waves crashing ashore. And that helps explain why the more conventional shoreline features are harder to see, because in many places they've been obliterated by the effects of these very rare tsunamis. So it hangs together. It's a seductive story. I'm not sure everybody's going to believe it straight away, but it's um, it's one of these damn good ideas that you think with hindsight, yeah, <laughs> that works. The Open University's David Rothery commenting on that study published this week in Scientific Reports. (music) 
This is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and this week I'm going to be investigating one of the world's favourite minerals, salt. It's vital to all life to survive, but too much of it can cause problems, whether that's in our diet, in the water and soil that we use to grow crops, or in our drinking water. So this week we're looking at the ways that scientists are trying to remove salt from where it's not wanted. But first of all, what is salt and how has it shaped our history? Georgia Mills has been sorting out the facts with the help of Imperial College London earth scientist Chris Jackson. Salt actually spans a broad, quite a broad range of rock types. Essentially, one of the common physical properties of these types of minerals is that they uh, can be dissolved in water. And then when the water is evaporated off, these minerals sort of precipitate out. So imagine taking a, a pan full of, of water and um, putting lots of salt in it and then boiling that pan for an hour or two hours. All of the steam will be rising off, so that's all the water turning into steam. And then at the end of that experiment, you'll be left with a film of, 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 of the material which can't be uh, kept within the vapour and is actually left as a solid in the base of that pan. So that's what we mean by evaporite and precipitation. While salt can refer to a whole host of minerals, the one we're most acquainted with is sodium chloride, which has some quite useful properties. Salt, it, uh, it absorbs water and therefore it starves a bacteria of, of water, therefore it can stop the, the food degrading and becoming rotten. So salt is a fantastic preservative. And this was, this was recognised many, many years ago. For example, the, uh, the Egyptians, for the mummification process, the way that uh, the pharaoh's bodies and, and the food and the, and the pets of the pharaohs were mummified was by basically embalming them with salt to draw out the moisture. Also, salt has, because of its preserving properties, it's also been used in the past to preserve food. So before we had um, refrigeration, we'd have to actually put salt into them. And again, it's to draw out the moisture to stop them being coming rotten. And that allowed, for example, armies to transport food over, over large distances to keep uh, the fighting force fed. So it's kind of had an illustrious history in the past and probably we're a bit more dismissive or we don't really think about it too hard now because it's so cheap, whereas in the past it was actually a, a hugely valuable commodity. Indeed it was, as well as enabling armies to march these huge distances with food, Roman legions were even sometimes paid in salt. And this is where we get the word salary from. Salt was once worth its weight in gold because it was so hard to find, but... Nowadays, we can get pretty much all we need from the sea, so it's not seen as such a valuable commodity. However, the sea is not the only place we find salt. It's also buried within the earth, and this is where it becomes valuable in a different way to researchers like Chris. Salt is this unique mineral, this unique rock, and when you actually start to uh, bury it, it actually starts to flow like a fluid rather than breaking in a brittle fashion like most people would envisage a rock does if you, if you stressed it too much. So we're interested in how salt flows and then how it deforms the Earth's crust as well. And then the sort of landscapes that are generated, or the seascapes, if it's, if it's below the Earth's surface, that are formed as a result of that. So there's an inherent sort of scientific value for us as scientists to understand how the Earth's crust deforms as a function of how salt moves. But from an applied point of view, it's hugely important for the oil industry as well. This being because salt is um, an impermeable rock, that means that it's actually very hard to flow fluids or gases through that rock body. Unlike sandstone or um, limestone, where we have small spaces in the rock where we can actually store hydrocarbons, so we can store oil and gas. The salt is impermeable. That means if we put the sandstone against the salt, so we put permeable rock against impermeable rock, 
and we can actually stop the migration of hydrocarbons and trap them. So a lot of the work we do is quite applied in terms of looking at how these salt structures form and how they can lead to the, the trapping of large volumes of hydrocarbons. And if that doesn't convince you it's important, I asked Chris to paint me a picture of a world without salt. It's a very interesting question because in, in some of the great offshore basins of the world containing salt, so for example offshore Brazil where we work, if you were to just physically remove all the dissolvable salt material from there, the earth's seabed would collapse and you'd probably trigger giant landslides off the Brazilian coastline. I mean, in places like Cheshire, yeah, if you, re- if you remove a lot of that salt from beneath the Earth's surface, you'd have a lot of subsidence. You'd have presumably rivers being rerouted. You'd have obviously huge threats to infrastructure as well, like gas pipelines, telecommunications pipelines as well. But it sounds like a good, uh, a good I'm not sure if a horror movie, but certainly, uh, <laughs> but certainly an adventure movie of sorts. Well, I hear they're looking for ideas. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Come make on TV. Well, I hope you're listening, Hollywood. But more importantly, can you imagine a world without salt? What on earth would you put on your chips? That was Professor Chris Jackson. He was speaking with Georgia Mills. Now, talking about food and chips and things, we've just heard how salt has been hugely influential in our ability to preserve food. And although we now have fridges, we do still use a lot of it in the kitchen. In fact, we probably use far too much. Reportedly, many Western countries are now way above the daily guideline for salt intake. For an adult, that's six grams per day. And to put that into perspective, there's about half a gram of salt in a small bag of crisps or a ham and cheese sandwich. But what does salt actually do to our insides? Well, we're joined by Vignesh Salvaraja, who's a kidney doctor from Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge. And also, I think it's fair to say Vignesh has a particularly personal insight into the effects of salt and blood pressure. Welcome. Tell us what happened to you. Thank you. I am a researcher in salt-related disease, and I had a stroke last year, interestingly enough. I had a bleed in my brain that was typical of a hypertensive stroke, which is a stroke you get with high blood pressure. Now, we should be clear here, you're in your 30s. Yes. So very young for someone, because most people who have strokes are older. Yes, I had normal blood pressure, I had a healthy diet, and I was a runner. So that was really unexpected and unlucky. What happened that day? Well, I was running a half marathon. I came back, I felt unwell, and about eight hours later, I lost my ability to speak. I lost all power on my right side. I lost my vision, and I collapsed. I basically was close to dying, but fortunately, the bleeding stopped just in time for me to avoid surgery. But you have made a very good recovery. You, admittedly, you, you do struggle a little bit with movement. I do. And, but for someone to be in that state and to now be being interviewed on a radio programme, that's, that's a dramatic turnaround. Certainly. My wife is very supportive. and um, I've done a lot of physio and we were actually drilling holes, hanging up curtains this morning. <laughs> so it's been a long long journey but you know I've been improving slowly and steadily. For a kidney doctor who spends a lot of his time worrying about his patient's blood pressure this must give you enormous insight into what the consequences can be. Certainly I've always told my patients to watch their blood pressure because high blood pressure is associated with stroke but from now onwards I can tell them I know what it feels like to have a stroke and I know Nobody wants to have one. (laughs) What is the relationship between salt and blood pressure? What's that guidance based on? What's the evidence? Over the last hundred years or so, 
there's been a number of studies looking at the relationship between salt intake and blood pressure. And without a doubt, it's right to say that populations which consume more salt have higher blood pressures. What is also interesting is we used to think that increasing our blood pressure was age was inevitable. The actual fact, in populations with low salt intake, such as indigenous populations, you don't see a rise in blood pressure with age. How do you know when you talk about indigenous populations that this is not a genetic thing? These people are all genetically the same and the whether or not they add salt to their diet is is just a, a confounding variable. It's one of these bystander effects. It has nothing to do with the, the reality of the blood pressure. In the very large studies carried out more than 50 years ago called the insult study, it looked at indigenous people in their own environments and those people who moved to the cities. And we watched these people change when they entered different environments and had more salt. Their blood pressures went up. Do we know why? The actual mechanism for salt-increased blood pressure is debatable. But most people think that increasing your salt intake increases the amount of blood volume and that pushes up your blood pressure. Why should eating more salt increase your blood volume? What's the mechanism of that? Sodium controls where water goes. So the extracellular volume, which is one-third of all the water in your body, tends to be bound to sodium. So if you eat more sodium, you tend to drink more and you tend to keep more volume in that extracellular space. So if there's more water in the blood vessels, they're stretching the blood vessels more. Certainly. Therefore, the pressure's going to be higher. Exactly. Why do we think that people's salt intake has risen in this way? Most of the salt we eat isn't from the salt that we add to our food. It's actually from processed foods, things like bread, cereals, cheese, sausages and bacon. We become very used to eating processed food. And in processed food, we have incredible amounts of salt. A slice of bread used to contain the same amount of salt as a packet of crisps. When this was highlighted by an organization called Cash, the food and beverage industry realized they had to cut back on salt. And that was quite alarming, the fact that people were eating salt and not realizing how much they were actually eating. And what you're saying that because we have all this intake, we've almost adapted to expect that taste. And so when things don't have that much salt, we don't like them. We certainly rely on salt to make food taste better. It appears that salt helps us to enhance the taste of sweetness and increase the taste of bitterness and make the flavour of a food taste more full. It's interesting that the processes by which this occurs is not fully understood, but it certainly implies that salt makes our food taste better to us. So what would you prescribe then? Uh, a better chef? I would certainly encourage people to read the labels of what they buy. If you buy processed food like bread or meat, read what's on the labels. Very often, what you see is not what you expect. We are advised to eat no more than six grams of salt a day. You'd be surprised how easily you can read six grams. Where did that six grams come from? Number of studies done over, over the years showed that six grams, the salt intake, you have is associated with ideal blood pressures and therefore reduced risk of heart attacks, strokes and heart failure.
And what proportion of people do you think actually hit that six grams a day target? Minority. The most recent survey called the National Diet and Nutrition Survey, the average salt intake for a male in England was nine grams. The average salt intake for a woman was seven grams. So overall, we are still eating too much salt. So we really do need to cut down. Thank you very much. That's Vignesh Selvaraja, who's a kidney doctor at Adambrooks Hospital and who also has a very unique insight into the importance of getting your blood pressure right. So too much salt in your diet can clearly be risky for your health. And it's also true to say the same goes for plants. But as the human population increases and the amount of land available for farming drops, including owing to the effects of climate change, finding salt-free soil and also salt-free water for growing food is going to be more and more problematic. So I went to see two plant scientists, Sandra Schmerkel and also Mark Tester, who are at the King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, KAUST, in Saudi Arabia. They're looking at a South American plant which can tolerate very large amounts of salt so they can find out how it does it. In front of you in the little um, cup, you can see quinoa seeds. So quinoa is quite interesting. It sort of cooks like rice, tastes a little bit nuttier. The interesting thing is that it has more protein than other cereals like rice or wheat that you would eat. It's gluten-free and it has a really interesting composition of proteins because it contains lots of essential amino acids. And so why are you interested in this? We are mainly interested in it because it's extremely salinity tolerant. So if you water it with half seawater, you still get two-thirds of its yield. And Mark, we're not accustomed to growing plants irrigated with seawater, so why is this even a consideration? The world's running out of water. About 40% of our world's food is grown under irrigation, and a large fraction of that is exploiting groundwater resources that are being depleted. It's an unsustainable extraction. We can't keep going the way we are. We both have to be able to use the lower quality water that we have got left, and we need to start considering using opening up new water sources, and the obvious source is seawater. That means you've got to now either find plants that like growing in seawater... Or, what, change the plants so they can tolerate seawater? Or a bit of both. So what we need to be able to do is make plants more salt tolerant so they can be irrigated with salty water. So what we need to be able to do is partially desalinise the seawater, increase the tolerance of some of our crops, then we might be able to develop a whole new agricultural system based on ultimately on seawater. And Sandra, how are you approaching that? What, what are the steps that you're taking to try and turn this quinoa from something that will grow in salty-ish soil in South America into something that could be a viable agricultural product? There are lots of different quinoa varieties. Not all of them are really useful at the moment for farmers because they have different heights, they have different colours, they're very various. So there still has to be done lots of breeding to fit the economic traits that the farmers would like for to scale it up to industrial scale. The other really big problem we have, these quinoa seeds have compounds, bitter compounds on them, which we call saponins. So they're soapy molecules that they have to be removed with lots of water. And Do you know why they're there? Yeah, we don't have experimental evidence for it as such, but it has been observed that in fields where you have quinoa growing with lots of saponin, you have less birds feeding on the quinoa seeds. So it's a bird deterrent, but it, because it's bitter, it's also a human deterrent and you'd like to get rid of it. 
Exactly. So humans don't like the bitter taste of the quinoa seeds. So it has to be washed off before it's useful for human consumption. How do you propose to do this then? How are you going to get versions of this plant that don't make those seeds with those compounds in them? So there are some varieties of quinoa that contain few saponins. But these are not really useful for any industrial use at the moment. So what we can do, we have looked at a quinoa variety in real detail. So we've taken the genome and we're sequencing the genome and looking in really great detail. And we also, because we know some of the lines that contain few saponins, we can breed that together with the line that contains high saponins. And then we go down a few generations and then based on Mendel's laws, we know that one quarter of the offspring will contain no saponins and the others will. So now we can compare the genomes because we have all that detailed information and hopefully we'll be able to nail down that gene that confers these saponins and is responsible for that. And then hopefully we'll find a way using modern technologies to reduce that amount of saponins or we can just breed the sweet line with the commercial lines and look for that marker of sweet, so low saponins, and then continue the breeding and make the plant sweet. How realisable is this? I think we're pretty close. The genome, we have that already assembled. We're on the way. We do have the lines that I talked to you about. We have bred the sweet and the bitter lines, and we have grown them, and we have analysed the, the amount of saponins we have in there. What we now need to do is bring those two bits of information together, overlay them, and then look for the genes. What about the salt tolerance that Sandra's mentioned, Mark? Are there other things that the genome will unlock for you and inform how this plant handles salt so well so you could put it into other plants? That's exactly right, uh, Chris. What we're doing is using the genome both for improving quinoa and its agronomic properties that Sandra's just described and also learning from the genome and from quinoa. It really is an amazing plant, very salt-tolerant. Really, the main thing is to learn how it's so salt-tolerant and then transfer that knowledge into other crops which are currently established but more salt-sensitive. The extreme example being rice, which feeds half the planet but is very salt-sensitive. What's particularly remarkable about the plant is that the leaves taste salty. They've got a lot of salt up in those leaves. How does a plant tolerate that? How does that plant keep green and keep photosynthesising, producing sugar, growing grain. That is remarkable and I'd love to learn that because plants like rice and wheat are pathetic at that. Mark Tester and Sandra Schmerkel at KAUST. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith. This week we're looking at the science of salt and how it affects us and the plants we eat. But fundamental to the health of both is a supply of fresh water and in many countries that is in short supply. One approach is the desalination of seawater, but this is a very energy-hungry process, so are there better ways of doing it? Noradine Gafour, at Kaust in Saudi Arabia, is working on some of them, and we sat chatting in his office, admiring the view over the university campus. So here we are in a very special place, which is Kaust, and you can see it's quite green, but this is through irrigation. It's, there is no rain. If I just go outside the walls of this campus... It's pretty much desert, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But this is the winter season. If you come to this in the summer, then <laughs> it is much, much drier than this one. I mean, this whole campus has got fountains, it's got water features, and as you say, very, very green. Lots of trees and plants. Where's the water for that coming from? This water comes from desalination plant. 
A desalination plant means we are making fresh water from seawater. And here, as you can see, we are in front of red seawater. And the, the Red Sea. This I mean, we should be clear, there's not red seawater. It is the Red Sea we're it's looking at. Sea. It's very salty. It's very salty. How do you deal with the, the rhyme of the ancient mariner, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink? How are you solving this? Yes, <laughs> that is the main issue here. And from that uh, concept, uh, water desalination technologies have been developed. So the reverse osmosis concept is using a membrane. It's a semi-permeable membrane, but very fine, very small pores to the point there is no pore. And we try to push seawater from one side of the membrane. But this membrane is very smart and allows only fresh water to pass through this, its pores or the structure of the membrane. So the water molecules can slip through, but the salt particles are kept on the other side. They can't get through. That's the situation. But in order to do this, we need to overcome what we call the osmotic pressure. What is the osmotic pressure? Each seawater has its own osmotic pressure depending on the concentration of salt. For example, here in the Red Sea, the osmotic pressure is 30 bars. So we need pressure to pressurize seawater much above 30 bars in order to get this fresh water from the other side. So in other words, if you've got very, very concentrated, strong salt solution, that's trying to pull water into it. So you've got to push the water really hard through the membrane and keep that push on, otherwise the water would just come back into the salt. That's what makes this process very energy-intensive. Just to give you an example, to produce one cubic meter of fresh water from Red Sea, we need four kilowatt hours. It's something like 50 elephants pulling something. Tell us about some of the new things that you are trying to develop here to surmount some of these problems. What we are developing now is to be as close as possible to nature. For example, our body is full of membranes, and we call those forward osmosis membranes. So by nature, if you put that membrane and you put two liquids from both sides of the membrane, one liquid is fresh water, the other liquid is salty water, you do nothing, no pressure, no temperature, nothing. By nature, the liquid of the low concentration starts to move towards the salty place. This is by nature. We don't push anything. That, that's just straightforward osmosis, yeah. isn't it? So what we have as a concept, in any place we need water, we have a lot of wastewater because we are using that water, then we throw it. So we put wastewater in one side of the membrane. On the other side, we put our seawater. So according to what I explained, what will happen? The dirty water, which is the wastewater, we start moving towards seawater. But this membrane allows only fresh water to pass. I mean, clean water to pass. All the dirty bacteria and this uh, suspended solid will not pass. So at the end, what we get? What do you think we get? We are diluting seawater, right? Because of that process, we are diluting seawater. Diluting seawater makes our feed for reverse osmosis very energy efficient. Why? I get it, because you're now getting rid of proportionally much less salt. And this will reduce the energy consumption significantly. So if you have diluted seawater, which is something equivalent to a brackish water, let's say, then the energy required for reverse osmosis is much, much less, half or even maybe less. Other techniques that you're developing? Absorption desalination. So it's a thermal-based, but it's a new process. We are using an adsorbent, like silica gel. It's a sand. If you put everything under a vacuum environment, the silica gel or the adsorbent will absorb water vapor from the sea. Seawater flows into an evaporator at its ambient temperature, ambient pressure, nothing to do. 
And that evaporator is connected to beds filled with adsorbents, as an example, silicate gel. By nature, the silicate gel will create vacuum because silicate gel by nature will adsorb, means we will suck water vapor from that seawater. And then when these adsorbents are saturated with vapor, we heat the silicate gel using solar energy because we need 50 to 60 degrees centigrade. And when the vapor is released from the silicate gel, it goes into a condenser and just condense it. And with this, we are producing very high quality water. In a nutshell, then, the water is pulled out of the ocean, goes into a chamber where it, it just naturally evaporates because connected to that chamber is a very dry bed of silica, which is sand, effectively. And that's pulling vapour out of the air and putting the pressure down. So more water wants to evaporate, but the only thing that's going to evaporate is fresh water. You're then using energy from the sun to bake that water-saturated silica, drive off the water it's absorbed, releasing water that's fresh, clean, that you can condense and use, but then you recycle the silica back to start the process again. So when I do the energy calculations for this, how much energy are you saving? So with this, we are saving more than 50% of the energy compared to reverse osmosis. Which is very good news, isn't it? That was Noradine Gafour from Kaust. But what you've heard so far is not the only solution, pardon the pun, because we can also desalinate in another way. And Lucy Weaver, who's the runner-up in Australia's FameLab competition earlier this month, is looking at smart polymers to supply the answer. We've heard a lot about salt on the program today. And down in Australia, we have a salt water problem. And I don't just mean the fact that we're surrounded by it. Big industries, particularly the dairy and mining industries, produce a lot of salty wastewater that can't be reused very easily or cheaply. And water is a precious commodity in short supply across most of the country. So, as part of my work for the CSIRO, Australia's national research organisation, I'm investigating new ways to take the salt out of this salty wastewater so that the water can be reused rather than thrown away like some of it is at the moment. The way I'm trying to do this is by using molecules called smart polymers. To explain what smart polymers are, I want you to imagine that you're on stage in a theatre in front of a sellout crowd. If you look out over the audience, you'll see that they're all sitting in chairs in rows. Since you're all the way up on stage, though, to you, those rows look a bit like chains of people. At the molecular level, polymers, also known as plastics, are also made up of chains. They are comprised of molecular building blocks, like the people in the audience, and these molecular links are held together by chemical bonds. There are many different types of links that can be used to make different types of polymer chains. And, depending on which links you use, you can give the polymers special properties. Some polymers can be made with links that allow them to respond to a stimulus, and it's this ability to respond that makes some polymers smart. Now, back in the theatre, imagine that you bow and then the crowd applauds you. In this example, your bow was a stimulus and the response was applause. In the case of my smart polymers, though, the stimulus is temperature and the response I'm trying to create is binding and release of salt. I've made polymers that contain some links that respond to a change in temperature and other links that attract salt. All of these links are organic compounds in that they're made out of carbon, hydrogen, oxygen and nitrogen atoms 
and some of these links contain acidic and basic groups that are able to interact with the salt. The way that I make these polymers is using a technique called raft polymerization. Raft stands for Reversible Addition Fragmentation Chain Transfer Polymerization, which is a fancy way of saying that we can make polymer chains that are the right size and composition for our needs. So, if we add some room temperature salty wastewater to my smart polymers, the aim is to get them to latch onto and soak up the salt, leaving behind clean water, which can be collected and used. But rather than throwing the used salt-laden polymer away, if we increase the temperature just a little bit, perhaps with some help from the sun, this change in temperature makes the smart polymer shrink and coil up. This process could potentially squeeze out all of the salt, which can then be removed. Then, if we cool things down again, the polymer chains uncoil and we're back to square one, ready to bind more salt. In real life, this heating cooling process can happen again and again, and the polymer chains, in theory, will never get tired. If my experiments are successful, this process of generating cleaner water could potentially cost much less than current methods and could use much less energy, as the polymers are very sensitive to small changes in temperature. And so, I think you'll agree, the potential of smart polymers deserves a round of applause. As does Lucy Weaver, who you heard there, and our other guests this week, Chris Jackson, Vignesh Salvaraja, Mark Tester, Sandra Schmuckel, and also Noradine Gafour. Now, to finish, time for our question of the week, and Emma Sackville has some food for thought for you. She's been cooking up a treat to answer this question from Solomon. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega. What role does cooking food play in digestion? Juicy question from Solomon there. Luckily, Dr Giles Yeo was on hand to help me break it down. Cooking had a very important role in the evolution of humankind because what it did was increase the availability of calories. Now, what do I mean by that? If you assume 100 calories of sugar, that's 100 calories, okay, because there's no processing required. If you assume 100 calories of celery or 100 calories of sweet corn, then I think, um, as you can tell in the loo the next morning, after you've had the sweet corn, not all the corn is going to get absorbed into you. What cooking does is to actually increase this availability. So if you take the corn and put it in a stew, um, you actually end up, for any given mass, any given amount of food, is get more calories from it. And this clearly then played a huge role because you put in the effort to pick food, gather food, hunt food, And clearly, the more you get from that effort, the more likely you are to survive. So what cooking does is take the same amount of food and allow you to get more calories out of it. So does cooking actually make food more digestible? Cooking made certain types of food more digestible by helping beginning the breaking down process. Some foods will never be digestible by human beings. Grass is probably a good good example. You need a rumen for that. You need specific type of bugs. But yes, um, cooking does make certain types of food more digestible. Which foods would we be unable to digest if we didn't cook them? That's an interesting question. I think an interesting thing to that is actually sweet corn is a very good example. Where in the kernel form, most of it doesn't get digested. The interesting thing about that is that if you actually then break it down into flour and actually bake and actually eat it, 
you can get obviously digest a lot more of it. So that's a perfect example where you can make cornbread and clearly you don't poop out cornbread the, the, the other side. But corn is a very good example where cooking, processing, turning it into cornbread makes it digestible, whereas the other is not. We hear a lot at the moment about you should eat raw food. Is that actually better for you? I think there are two ways of looking at it. Are some vegetables better raw? I think clearly because you can get more minerals. Some vitamins are killed by cooking. But the vast majority of the time, I believe that why it's actually better for you is because you actually absorb less calories. And so you actually end up eating less. Thanks to Dr. Giles Yeo from the University of Cambridge. Next time, we'll be turning the volume up with Mark's question. How do active noise cancelling headphones work? If they play back loud ambient noise, could they be as dangerous as listening to loud noises? And if you have any thoughts about that one, we'll be listening. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can join in the debate on our forum. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. That's all for this week. The programme was produced by Georgia Mills. We're back next time with a look at the science of stress. As pressure in the workplace intensifies, what are the costs for human health and well-being? And is laughter really the best medicine? The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.